mentality and disposition. <laughs> Eric, who knows me, got that one. Um, so I, I moved out actually to Milwaukee, Wisconsin about four years ago. I was, I was part of a, a team of pastors at a church out there. And then this past September, I moved down to Chicago to participate in this one-year program called the Chicago Course on Preaching. Um, I met Eric uh, and, and have joined your church family, so thank you just for the hospitality that you've shown me and just allowing me to be with you and to grow in this season. This morning, we'll be looking at a passage from 1 Peter 1. If you want to turn there, I'll be reading out of the ESV. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 13. We'll go all the way through verse 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout this time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in this last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to your word, we thank you for it, how it gives life to our souls. Lord, we come here with different things happening in our lives, different external circumstances and different internal thoughts and emotions running through us. And we come here looking to be shaped and formed by your word. So we ask that you give us soft hearts, that your Holy Spirit will shape and form us closer into the image of your Son through your word. pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. I don't know if you saw this a, a few months ago, but Netflix put one of the best shows of all time on its platform. Of course, I'm talking about Seinfeld. Now, my father grew up, or when I was growing up, my father watched Seinfeld a lot. It was one of his favorite shows, and so it became one of my favorite shows. I've seen it a ton of times. However, a bunch of my friends have never seen the show. So now that it's on Netflix, they've started watching it. And, and they've picked up on something that I was hoping they wouldn't. In a lot of ways, I resemble George Costanza. Uh, my physical appearance as I start to bald, uh, my disposition, like some of the things I say, my mannerisms, my attitudes towards these little social interactions. And now and then I'll get a text from one of my friends and be like, oh, St- Costanza just said this, that's something you would say. Because my traits resemble some of his traits. We, we share similar characteristics. I wonder if there's a, a character from a TV show, a movie, a book that you think resembles you, that your friends and family would be like, yeah, those traits that we see in that character, we see that in you as well. 
Now, more so, the question that is raised by our passage this morning is what traits are to characterize believers? What qualities are we to possess and exhibit in our faith journey, as our friends and our families observe us, what would they say about you and me? And as a church family, not just as individuals, but as, as a collective, what traits would the surrounding community and our neighbors say characterize us? The title of my sermon this morning is In the Meantime, because Peter is writing to this group of believers that is going through a a rather hard time. There's suffering and persecution. And even in his opening, he he greets them in this letter and he calls them exiles. They're strangers in a strange land, having been called by the Lord, but not brought home yet. This is the place we find ourselves as well. And Peter starts this letter by reminding them of this great salvation that has been secured by Jesus for them in the past. I mean, we sing about it at Christmas. This is the first coming that we celebrate. He reminds them of that. But then he also points forward to the future throughout his letter to this salvation that awaits them. There is the first coming, but there is the promise of the second coming that he points to. And he then, essentially, for most of his letter, is guiding this group of believers of how they are to live in between these two points in history. How they are to live in the meantime. What traits should define them as individuals, as a community, as a redeemed people that is not home yet? What necessary characteristics they will have to pick up if they're going to faithfully endure this journey until the end, without quitting, without turning back. What traits are necessary for us to make it, to live a life well, honoring God, and finding joy in the midst of this journey? Ultimately, the truth that that Peter would have them and us see is simply this. Hopefulness and holiness are to be the traits of God's people. This, this attitude of expecting God's return and godly living, those are the traits that we are to be known for. In fact, in this journey of faith, hopefulness and holiness, those are the two things that will sustain us till the end. They'll bring glory to God, and they'll also be what we are known for by those who watch us. Hopefulness and holiness are to be the traits of God's people. But as as Peter is instructing this group of believers and us, he he understands that this this hopefulness and this holiness, it doesn't just automatically happen. They're traits that grow over time. They must be nurtured and developed. So with that, I I would like to take some time this morning and talk about both these traits what they are, and more so, how we are to cultivate them properly as believers. So the first trait we see is in verse 13, and it's this mind set on hope. Peter's main instruction in this verse is set our hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, in some ways, this is a very familiar concept to us. 
I mean, after all, as humans, we all have hopes. Every single one of us has a plethora of hopes, things that we're looking forward to. Christian, non-Christian, young, old, single, married, we all have hopes. We all have a, a picture in our head of what we hope the future will look like. Perhaps your hope is on meeting someone special. Perhaps your hope is getting a new job that both pays the bills and actually is fulfilling. Or perhaps a hope of yours is, is seeing a fractured relationship become repaired. We all have the hope of a good bill of health for ourselves and for our loved ones. Many of us are hopeful that this, this upcoming weekend of holiday celebrations will be filled with cheer and joy. And most of us, I'm sure, are hoping that it will be void of strife. We, we certainly have hopes going into the new year of what life might look like, of what life might bring to us. Collectively, in this new year, we certainly have the hope that we finally get out of this pandemic. As human beings, we are hoping constantly. Of course, some of our hopes will be fulfilled, and some of them will not. Most of our hopes are not bad in of themselves. We generally tend to hope for good things. And it certainly isn't wrong for us as believers to have hopes. But we have to, we have to come to terms that many of our hopes will not be fulfilled. They're not guaranteed. They're simply wishful thinking. But then again, we do have hopes that are fulfilled. That thing that we've been waiting for that finally does come around. And when we get there, as good as it might be, we tend to realize that it wasn't all that we thought it would be. It, it's a good thing, but it doesn't fix everything, does it? it? It's not as if life becomes perfect, simply magically made better in every single way, shape, and form because our hope is fulfilled. We often treat our hopes that way, don't we, though? That once we get that thing, everything will be better. And so we, we solely focus on it. We devote all our energy towards it because we think that this wishful desire will bring 100% bliss if it comes to be. But we've all lived enough life that if we pause and step back, we know that isn't true. Because we have had hopes fulfilled before, and we still have problems. The world we live in is still crazy at times. Sin still gets the best of us at times. Relationships still fall apart. Even the hopes we have here, as good as they may be, they never fix everything. This is not the hope that Peter is talking about here. Peter is talking about a hope that is so much better, that actually will fulfill all of those things that we hope our hopes on this side of heaven will actually bring. As good as our hopes might be, they simply just are pale in comparison to the hope that God gives his people. Christian hope is, is much more than, than wishful thinking for a, for, for a preferred future. Christian hope is 
the assured anticipation of Christ's return. It's when Jesus comes back and he makes all things new. When he wipes away every tear from every eye. When he fully restores us. When he completely removes us from the presence and the effects of sin. And he puts us in his presence with his people in his new creation. This is what we are to set our hope on. When life truly will be 100% perfect and how God has always meant it to be. And it's not something that we're wondering if it will happen. This hope that Peter talks about and points us to, it's not a matter of if, it is simply a matter of when. Our hope, this assured anticipation, it's rooted in what God has already done, and it points to what God will do. That God has made us alive through Jesus' death and resurrection and our faith in him. And because of that death and resurrection, we can be assured this promise that he will return again. Christ's resurrection in this sense is, it's like a preview. As with him, so will it be with us one day. That's why we can be assured of it. Because we can look back at the victory of the resurrection. This is Christian hope. This assured anticipation. And this is a hope that is to be a trait of us as believers. Because it's going to help us carry through to the end. Yet I think if most of us were honest, this isn't the first thing that comes to mind when somebody asks us, like, what are you hopeful for, is it? No, again, we go back to all those other things. But I think that's why Peter gives us the instruction to set our minds on it. He realizes that it's not something that just naturally happens, but it requires some intention. Again, our day-to-day hopes, nobody really has to tell you to hope for them. You kind of just naturally, innately do it because you see the benefit of it. But here, there becomes the need to set our hope on something specifically and intentionally. The question, of course, then becomes, well, how do we do that? How do we set our minds on this hope? Peter provides two ways how we are to set our hope. He tells us to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded. Interestingly, we we naturally think of hope as this emotion, right? Uh, When you think of somebody as hopeful, you think of like this swelling emotion that they're positive and optimistic. Of course, that's good. But Peter tells us that properly orienting our hearts on this hope, it actually starts in our minds. Prepare your minds, be sober-minded. Right? We're to train our minds to think in a new way in response to our salvation. This is the new way, or thinking in this new way, it does take work and it takes effort. Or our thinking doesn't just passively change on its own, it's a discipline. Uh, the phrase preparing your mind, uh, a modern equivalent would be roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. Uh, it, it's, it's doing this necessary preparation so that we have the right disposition towards God's salvation that awaits us. It reminds us of the truth that salvation has been secured in the past, that we have presently been brought into God's family, and that there is this great salvation that awaits us. In, in remembering all that awaits us, 
even in the midst of the hardship of the journey, we'll find we can be people that are characterized by hope. As we let this truth of what awaits us, the glorious return of Christ, soak into our minds, we will be people that bring hope to those around us. And for sure, I think a major way that we prepare our minds is prayer. I mean, prayer is one of the best ways. Praying that God will indeed focus our minds in the right places, but praying also for his return. We're instructed to pray for Christ's return, and it makes us anticipate it all the more. Just as we pray for other hopes in our lives, it grows our anticipation for it. In the same exact way, we should be praying for Christ's return. So doing, our minds will be shaped. The problems we face and the joys we experience will realize that they're not the most important thing or the most true thing about us. Actually, what's the most true thing about us is where we're going to go. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever run a race. It's been a minute for me. (laughs) Uh, It takes preparation. Nobody tries to run a marathon without prepping for it. The race that we're on, this journey of faith that we're on, takes preparation if we're going to make it. There's no way around it. If we think that we can just pick up and run without preparing our minds, we will sorely be disappointed. So we prepare our minds, but then we're also to remain sober-minded. Sober-minded, it carries this idea of, of, of seeing reality for what it really is, not having a distorted view of life. Now, I think we would all say that at at times our our view of life certainly becomes distorted. Primarily, the way it becomes distorted is is we lose track of the story of Scripture, of our redemption. We begin to think of life in different terms. We think of life in terms of careers or relationships. Again, those could be good things, but they are not the most true thing. Being sober-minded is reminding ourselves of the story and continuing to put the story on the forefront of our minds. It will keep us seeing clearly both who we are and what is going on in the world. And it will most certainly help us stay self-controlled, not being tossed and turned and going after every other thing. Being sober-minded is necessary for a long journey. Now, if you're trying to muster up purely a sensational hope without doing the mental exercise of of properly orienting your mind, it simply will never happen. You can't just force yourself to have this emotional, exuberant hope. You can discipline your mind. Setting our hope on Christ is an exercise primarily of the mind. And that's what we're to do in the meantime. Now, I'll confess, this idea of like setting our minds on hope, it's actually comforting to me. I'm not like the most optimistic person by nature. I'm not like by disposition just overly excited about everything. Now, if you're like me and you just wouldn't consider yourself naturally a hopeful person, this passage is actually really confronting us. 
Because we like to kind of use our, our natural personality or disposition to be like, ah, that's not for me. Well, it's like, if it starts in the mind, that's for everybody. Preparing your mind, being sober-minded, that's not something that you can just be like, ah, that's not how God created me. And at the other side of it, if you are a person who just naturally finds hope easy and it just emotionally swells in you, wonderful. Don't neglect training your mind for hope. Because as Peter is writing these Christians, they're in really, really bad times. And sometimes we will find ourselves there as well. And if we are just relying on an emotional hope, that won't survive some of the trials we have to go through. A hope that's rooted in the mind, though, it will keep you grounded during trying seasons. Hope, proper hope on Christ's return, it's a fundamental trait of the people of God. And it's a hope that requires our attention and our cultivation. The second trait of God's people we see in verses 14 through 16, and it's simply holiness. Let's be clear up front what holiness is and not here. We're not talking about a holiness that is derived from ourselves. It's not about our good works, and it certainly is not about earning our salvation or acceptance before God. Righteousness, our righteousness, comes from faith in Jesus and his perfect life, his death for our sins, and his resurrection. Peter, though, is writing here to believers, so he's writing to people who already have faith, that already have the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. So these are instructions about how they are to live, not in order to get in the family, but how they are to live now that they are already in it. And Peter puts two options before them, two options before us, either being conformed to our former passions, our lusts, or being holy, reflecting the Father. This idea of being conformed to our passions uh, It's interesting, right? Because Peter isn't simply warning them against sin. He he certainly is warning them against sin. But he's warning them of the catastrophic change and damage that comes from living in sin. He's warning them of the impacts of continually living in sin. We sometimes can just think of sin as like this one-time moment, this one-time action That doesn't matter. And what Peter is saying is that if we are in sin, it begins to mold us, to conform us, to shape us in a way that certainly is is not God-honoring, but is also detrimental to the well-being of our own souls. And, And so Peter is telling us, do not be conformed to it. Don't go near it, because sin will slowly erode and reshape our hearts and minds. Sin numbs us to its reality, to its impact, to its work of shaping us. And so this morning, if you find that you have actually been caught up, that you're tangled in a sin pattern, and that you realize it is, is conforming you and shaping you in a way that, again, is, is not honoring to God and detrimental to your own soul. My plea with you is that you bring somebody else into the conversation. 
There is little else that is of more benefit than bringing our sin to light with another believer. Whether you confide in a trusted brother and sister or in Christ or or reach out to one of the pastors here, I promise you there is hope to find forgiveness, healing, transformation. I also promise you that we rarely find those by going it alone. So on the one hand, we have the option of conforming to our former passions. But on the other hand, we have this call to live holy. This call to live godly lives, avoiding sin, loving one another. And and primarily, we see that this holy living is actually an outflow of our identity. And, And in so doing, we resemble our Father. This is why he starts by saying, as obedient children, he's pointing out their identity as children of God. That he's delivered them from sin. He has brought them out just as he brought Israel out from Egypt. In, in this sense, living a, a holy lifestyle, it's actually living out our identity. It's us being most truly who we are in Christ. And as we come to embrace this identity, we actually find there's much joy to be had in it. Somewhere along the way, we've kind of lost this idea that holiness actually produces joy. I think we often think of God's laws as restrictive, as robbing joy. We think of God's laws as random tasks that a father gives his kids on a Saturday morning to get them out of the house. Now, I'm not saying holiness is always easy. Not saying that. But there is joy to be found. Living as obedient children, it's, it's not to harm us. It's not to rob us of fun. It's not to diminish our worth. It's not to diminish our joy. It's actually to enhance them. Having been freed from sin, the very thing that we came to Christ to get out of is a way to enjoy our freedom as God has intended. Honoring Him and loving others. Fostering healthy relationships bringing dignity to those around us, and once again, producing great joy. I think for many of us, learning to live as obedient children rather than being conformed starts with this change of perspective. The outcome of sin is detrimental to our own souls. Living a holy life brings great joy. And in so doing, as living as obedient children, we're also resembling and reflecting the character of God to those around us. This is one of the primary things that God has redeemed us for. Be holy, as I am holy. We are created and now we have been redeemed to reflect who God is in his character and in our conduct. And just like with other people that you admire, one of the best ways to actually cultivate holiness is by spending time with God. If you want to be like somebody, if you want to learn their skill, spend time with them. I cannot impress upon you enough our need to be with the Lord if we are to reflect and resemble His holiness. 
in prayer, in His Word, and in community. As we are with one another, especially of those that are younger in faith, as we are with those that are older in faith, allow what they have to rub off on us. Uh, the other day, one of my friends, he, he, he said a phrase, and somebody attributed it to him. And I got a little, a little like, you know, actually, that's something I initially said. That's something I initially do. I got a little offended. Spent a lot of time with the guy. My mannerisms, my sayings rubbed off on him. That's how we are to be with the Lord. And our holiness, again, is not simply about us. It is how the world will come to see God and see his people. There are many people here, many people outside these walls, that have been wounded deeply by how Christians conduct themselves. And these people who have been wounded, it is not just the pain of the one sin that somebody has done to them is how it has damaged their view of who God is. Brothers and sisters, this is not how it is to be. People are to look at us and they are to get an image of God, that he is gracious, that he is good. They are to get an image of his love and his mercy and his character. Holy living is a tall order It's not easy as aliens and strangers who live in exile, but it's worth it. Because again, there's only two options, conformed to our former passions. And those things might be satisfying in the moment, but inevitably always lead to emptiness. Or we can devote ourselves to holiness, find joy in living out our identity and actually proclaim the goodness of our God to those watching. Holy living might not be easy, but it is worth it. Now, none of us are perfect, obviously, in this room. One of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older is every single day I look a little bit more like my father. You look in the mirror and you catch something about yourself, and you're like, oh my gosh, that is my dad's face staring at me. I don't look exactly like him, and none of us are perfect. But each day, it's a little bit more. As you get older spiritually, who are you resembling? Hopefulness and holiness. These are the traits of God's people. Now, there's a relationship between these two things, hopefulness and holiness, right? If if we're hoping for that day when Christ returns, we certainly will be living towards it in our holiness. And if we're not hoping for that day, our personal holiness isn't really going to matter too much to us, right? And the same is true with our holiness. As as we continue to devote ourselves to holiness, there will be an anticipation for Christ's return. But if we don't, well, simply Christ's return will be nothing but something that produces shame and guilt in us. Our our hope and our holiness, they're tied together. Where our hope is and our devotion to holiness, they become two sides of the same coin. Having established these traits of hope and holiness for God's people, 
In the final verses of our passage, starting in verse 17, Peter gives us three quick reminders and motivations for cultivating these traits. First, there is this acknowledgement that while God is a loving Father, He's also an impartial judge. Now, I want to be clear. We know that this is not talking about condemnation for those that are in Christ. Again, he is talking to a group of believers here. Once again, living holy lives is not how we get into the family, but it is how we are to live as we now are part of it. And so, we understand that for those of us in God's family, there still is going to be this impartial judgment of our time here on earth on this journey. To dismiss this idea is to trivialize God's holiness to our own detriment. While God is most certainly a loving Father and we approach Him as children, we should not live a life without any reverence towards God. We set our hope on this future salvation and we are devoted to holiness because we know that God is an impartial judge. Second motivation, the cost of redemption. Redemption entails a payment for liberation. And our liberation was not cheap. In fact, Peter puts the value on it of something beyond anything else he can think of. Christ's blood shed for us. Looking back at that payment should motivate us to put our hope in Christ's return and to devote ourselves to holiness. Now, for those of us that have been in the church for a while, this certainly is a good reminder. Don't take for granted what it costs to get us into God's family. Taking it for granted will cause us to lose an appreciation for who he is and what he has done for it. We have this future judgment, this past payment of our redemption. And lastly, we see that our hope is to be set on this future salvation because it's assured. Once again, Peter points to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's implied that as Jesus is the forerunner for us, we too will participate in this resurrection. It's not a question about it. Again, it's not wishful thinking. It is guaranteed. This is a living hope that we can be assured of. So we look to the past and we look to the future And we allow it to shape our hope and our holiness in the meantime. At different moments in our lives, I'm sure each one of these motivations will be used to varying degrees. Future judgment doesn't sound fun, but I don't know about you. Sometimes I need a kick in the pants. Remembering the, the price and the cost of our salvation at different times is the motivation that God will bring us to set our hope in Him, and to bring us to live a more holy life. Whatever the motivation is, whenever it comes, heed its call. Because they are meant to motivate us to cultivate the proper hope and holiness. Hope and holiness are going to sustain our journey so that we don't turn back. They're going to bring great joy to us in the midst of it, even through the hardships. And in so doing... We will be glorifying God and proclaiming Him to a watching world. Hope and holiness are absolutely essential traits for God's people. I love caricatures. 
You know those, those goofy drawings that people do that highlight one person's traits? They give them like a huge forehead or a big nose or something like that. They, they pick these distinct features that we're all already aware of, and then they just magnify it. I mean, they pick something, and then it just becomes like the predominant feature of this person. And if you know the person and you see the drawing, even though it's like this wacky drawing, because they have distinguished this person by this feature, you're like, oh, I know exactly who that is. If, character, if a caricature artist were standing before you, standing before us as a church, and they were looking at our spiritual features, what traits would they see? What would be so distinct about us that they would highlight it and exaggerate it in their drawing so that the world around us would see that drawing and they would know immediately who we are? Let us pray and let us strive for hope and holiness, for they are the traits of God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have a great hope in your Son, Jesus Christ, that you have given us a redemption now, but there is an even fuller redemption that awaits us. Lord, we pray that we discipline our minds to focus on that and that you give us the strength to live out this identity as your children that reflect you in a world that so desperately needs you. Father, we pray this for us as individuals. We pray this for us as a church body, that you would be glorified in all we say and do. Amen.